season three proper and the pilot episode. Uh, this episode actually got a little bit of a budget boost that was kind of distributed in an unusual way be, by virtue of being able to successfully argue with the bean counters that this effectively was a pilot, a relaunch. This is something that I've actually talked about before, how they would start rebranding the show and changing the marketing around it to show that this was Star Trek Enterprise rather than just Enterprise. You remember that new intro song too, which I did listen to. It's weirdly upbeat, isn't it? I mean, I guess they did that with DS9 as well. But then again, I'm the weirdo who likes the earlier DS9 intro song more than the later one, so I, I don't know what the hell. Anyways, <clears throat> we have to establish a lot of stuff. This is Berman Braga and uh, Alan Croker again, and it shows. And, all right, we have to establish several things. So we've gotten some generic establishment. I shouldn't say it that way. That sounds negative. But we've gotten some establishment out of the way. It's time to start getting into specifics. All right, so we know what the Zindi are. Let's show individual Zindi. Now we find out that there's the Zindi races. Okay, so that's that's gotten across. We need to focus more on the Makos. Read. We need to focus more on T'Pol and Tucker. Okay, so we're going to zoom in the camera a little bit. This is a good pilot, except for a couple of weird little moments. But anyways, I also think this was a smart move. Do you mind if I talk about fan fiction for just a moment? I guess you can't answer that question. I could technically sit here and wait, but I, I would be waiting here about two years. <laughs> a little over two years, actually, at this exact moment in time. So I'm just going to assume the answer is yes, or you're actively hitting you know, skip or pausing the YouTube video as we speak. Once upon a time, I had an idea for a Trek show. I've, it's, it's something me and a friend of mine kind of workshopped and put together. I like to do most of my writing in a group if I can, and we were going to submit it. I've talked about this a couple times before. It never got anywhere, just like most shows that are submitted never get anywhere. I mean, they get, they get ideas all the time. It's very normal. But the relevant point is the whole show was actually going to start with a shot of this alien council. And they were going to be speaking something that we didn't actually understand. And the whole point of the scene was that much later in the show, you were going to be able to go back and rewatch that and understand what's going on. And it was going to change the context, a deliberate attempt at Babylon 5 effect, in other words. That is why I approve of using the Zindi Council right here off the bat. While most of what's happening is surface level and obvious, there are a few interesting facets of it, which, again, I will not spoil because there are some of you watching this with me. So it is interesting to see the dynamics between the various council members and between the races. The one thing that we can walk away with definitively is, even now, the council does not agree with itself, as per most regulatory bodies of this manner. So it's not really surprising that all of them are constantly arguing and yelling. It makes me wonder how much arm-twisting had to happen for them to even agree on the idea of the weapon. The, you know, the, the, the planet destroyer. A little side tidbit here, if I may. They're, they also kind of mention this in another way. When they're helping... Oh, I wrote down his name. They never say his name in the episode. Kessick. When, they, when they're helping Kessick escape... That's when he flat out states there are five Zindi species on the off chance he didn't pick up on that. And if you ask them, you will get five different opinions on which one is dominant. Now, why is that significant? Because right out the gate, that says everything it needs to. That one line is actually excellent exposition. You wouldn't bring that up if the question of who was dominant was something that was so prevalent, 
so normal, so every day that even years or decades later, it's still the kind of thing that is at the forefront of their general cultural consciousness. So that one random person can actually say something like that as an offhanded aside, right? Because it's it, because there, it, it gets across the idea of how internecine those struggles were. Now, we will learn more about this in the future, but that that's actually brilliant. Um, so there's going to be hundreds of Earth ships that will follow. This is the closest thing that the show comes to actually explaining why they would send one random probe with with the stupidity in the last episode that I talked about. It's the idea that their intelligence gathering is terrible. They don't even know that this this great and terrible power is someone who just entered the space age within the last century and only has one real ship, one Warp 5 ship, the, the carrier analogy that we've used so many times, especially over on the Trek rewrite stuff. So naturally, this is their explanation. But I find myself wondering, if they can build something like this, and they have access to the abilities to reach Earth, you'd think they would know something more about their enemy. But whatever. I'm going to let it go. I just wanted to point out that this is their explanation, and it still doesn't work. There's also a nice little tidbit there, though. We will accomplish nothing if all you do is run tests. That implies a lot, too. So we have the new song, and I never have to listen to it again until we get to In a Mirror Darkly. I'll be listening to that intro. <laughs> so, new set, Command Center, and it's, hey, and then we have some awkward and bad exposition, which is literally Argus position, where Archer is ranting. I guess this could be Rant's position? Where Ar Archer is ranting about how little success they've had and mentions that it's been six weeks since they've been in the Expanse, and they have found nothing. Credit to the episode, this actually makes a degree of sense. No, it, it actually does. <sighs> space is big, and even roaming around at warp 5, this is also a dangerous part of space, I'll cover that in just a second. Even warping around at warp 5, this is, uh, like, try imagine trying to find a specific group under these circumstances that probably has a definitive reason for not being found. It is within possibility that they could never find them. They happen to get very lucky in this episode, to get the one lead that they do. And thus, Archer's decision is arguably the correct one. It's a lead, and so far we've had none. So, we're going to jump on it. It is dangerous, and he's absolutely right about that, and it's unproven, and he's right about that too. Either way, uh, we also see one of T'Pol's new outfits here. I kind of wish we could see her in something else. I, I know, I hate to keep complaining. Like I said, I liked her in her Vulcan robes. I think she looked awesome there, and they suit her. But whatever. The point is that it, I do think these look better than the cat suit from Season 1 and Season 2, which, in my opinion, actively looks bad. But I've already commented on that, so moving on. We then get the intro for the Makos. This works pretty well. It's a quick and dirty int introduction to them. They've got a little bit of camaraderie going on. They like to leave meals half unfinished because wasting food is a great idea when you're out on your own and have no possibility of resupply. And we get the brief interactions between them and Sato. Hope you enjoyed that because Sato moments are few and far between. Then we also get a little thing where we see the spatial anomalies and the gravity constantly smashing back and forth between the two walls. Is there anything volatile in those? I would know already. Uh, thanks, Tucker. That's really enthusing me here. Then, to once again bounce back and forth between weird exposition and good exposition, 
let's hope this one doesn't last as long as the others. Implying, rather overtly, that they have been interacting with various kinds of spatial anomalies regularly. Huh. This is a weirdly good episode, which is why I'm surprised by it, because it does a lot very quickly and efficiently. In fact, all of this, everything I've just discussed, is in the first ten minutes of the show. Uh, actually, that's probably inaccurate, because that doesn't account for the intro song. So it's probably like nine minutes of the show, just bam, 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 bam. And all of those points that have been brought up, now we actually meet the Makos for the first time, we find out that Tucker's having more trouble sleeping, you know, all this stuff is just kind of exposited on very quickly and very efficiently. Then we get to the episode proper. This is, well, this is where the episode falls apart just a little bit more. Because the episode proper is mostly just another typical Trek episode, in terms of its structure and its skeleton. There are some variances, and I will give the show credit for that, but honestly, it feels like they're just trying to take a typical Trek episode and darky it up a little bit. Okay, so there's a planet, we have to beam down, we interact with the person there, they are, oh my gosh, they're secretly evil, lore shock, and then we have to go ahead and escape, and the rescue team comes in and rescues them at the last second, right before they're about to be killed, and we escape, we get away, the end. Like, like, right? I know that could apply to a lot of things, and I don't want to sound too dismissive, but you see how I look at this like it's still just a Trek episode, other than the intro and certain parts of the in-between. That being said, um, I do like the... <laughs> Sorry, I just noticed one of my notes. I do like the idea that Tucker is really having trouble sleeping. I know that's horrible because it is, but that's the point, isn't it? He is actually having trouble sleeping and he's being drugged down every night. But drugs just help you get to sleep. They don't prevent you from dreaming. And thus we see why he's having so many issues. Yeah. So we cut down to the foreman. In order to make the, the, uh, I guess prop is the right word here, of the Trellium D dust and the, the random crap, they got a bunch of blue painted styrofoam and shredder chipped it up so it was all over the place. Um, now that's neat and all. It's probably pretty cheap, which is probably why they did it. Have you ever dealt with styrofoam before? Like in a shipping concern, for example? Because, uh, According to various reports, they were still finding chunks of this Trellium D styrofoam after the show was done. Like, after season four. There were still parts of the lot where they would still find bits of Trellium D styrofoam just lying around. Because, of course, they did. <laughs> right? It just, it gets everywhere and it sticks to things and it's just... I, I do not envy the cleaning crew. That's all I'm saying. Or the cast, for that matter. But anyways. Uh, so... Once again, trying to establish that tone thing. I feel like the darker tone thing is less p done well in this episode. Here, I'll give you the identifier. And they've, he's chopped off his finger. Here you go. Scan the finger. Okay. This is also when we are introduced to Trillium D as a concept. This is, again, the power of string continuity. In a typical... This, this is where I will give this episode some credits. In a typical Trek episode, we found this new material. What is it? It's this. It's It's a pen... What's the pen do? Well, it allows us to inject ourselves with particles, and the particles will enable us to be able to survive the flagadarns. Perfect. Let's go harvest some and get it. We need to get in at the last minute. No, I'm not going to make it. It's in the ship. The ship's safe. Quick. Raise shields. And then they succeed. And there's probably a bad guy shooting at them while they're doing this, right? I mean, that just sounds like an episode of Voyager, doesn't it? But in this, instead, it's more like, what's that? Oh, it's a pen. 
And that's kind of it. The only reference to what Trillium D is for is what do your ships use as part of your hull? And like, well, we have this armored hull. And he's like, oh, okay. And that's it. So I hate to keep, I hate to sound like a broken record, but this is the real benefit of this kind of thing because it's a, it's a long form storytelling thing. It allows you to establish points that come up later rather than having to race through everything in 44 minutes or 22. So this then leads to it's a trap or shock. And Tapal takes command seamlessly, again, still going to be pushing for that to be her story arc over in uh, the rewrite. Hayes is, uh, make sure to bring Hayes in on this. So Hayes makes the correct call here, arguably. We need to send down the troops in order to do an infantry infiltration mission. To be clear, I agree with Hayes 100% there. It is interesting that both Tapal and Reed also agree with Hayes. Reed just is not particularly happy about this because he knows that this is more of a a, a bit of an ego. Um, uh, that ego's almost the wrong word. <sighs> You're in a new environment and you need to establish yourself. That's that's kind of what's going on here, and he's right. That is what Hayes is pushing for. He needs his troops to and his commandos to show that they are more than capable and competent in these kind of scenarios, and so he does. Whether that's acceptable or not is a lot more debatable. I have actually heard many people within the military who have given many differing opinions on this exact same concept. But the one thing everyone tends to agree on is it's kind of fine as long as the mission actually is accomplished. And in this case, the mission is accomplished. No casualties, too. Nice touch. So, they go down. They save people. There's this bit where there's some bad exposition where they're doing this arduous climb up a tube and they're expositing as they go. But it's also very good exposition because this is where we have that dominant line I mentioned earlier. I don't know. This then leads to the miner saying, I'm going to take you up top and have you shot on the surface because that makes sense. I don't even know why that line's in there. It's stupid and dumb. I guess the, the, the foreman is not exactly a smart person, but where does that come from? Whatever. Point is, foreman's like, Arr! and then I'm evil. <laughs> Mustache twirl mustache twirl. And as he's doing this, uh, the Makos come in, they save them, big action sequence, and a Zindi dies, but in his dying breath manages to give them some information to help them on their way. Huh. This is then cut to what would normally be the outro, you know, the denouement of the episode, where Tucker goes into Paul's room. Now, I've gushed about the chemistry between these two actors since the very beginning. And I really do think the interaction between Tucker and T'Pol is one of the better uh, connecting points of characters in all of Enterprise. And I stand by that statement. This scene is here for sex appeal. Let's just say that as bluntly as we can. I am more okay with this than I thought I would be. Now, it's not because of Jolene Blaylock. It's not even because of Trenere. I wish I looked like that. No, it's because of the fact that there's this actually kind of flows logically from both of their character arcs. It does. The two already have an understanding and a degree of friendship. They already have shared things with each other they haven't shared with other people. So there's already a connection there. And this is a long-standing connection, like two years, as I mentioned. Two years plus at this point. <sighs> then you add into that the fact that he really is having trouble sleeping, and the meds really are something that he probably shouldn't be taking every single night. Even in the Trek era, getting a hypospray every night is probably not a good idea. So, you know... The fact that T'Pol has this technique which can work, which is vaguely meditative and more of a massage kind of a thing, makes sense. The fact that she would trust him enough to do this 
makes sense. Now, this is also something that couldn't have happened earlier on. Again, not just because of the connecting points, but because their very attitudes have changed. Season one to Paul would have been like, okay, fine, I'll go along with it. And then offer the option to him. And he would have his whole, no, 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 no. And she would just let it go. Season one Tucker would have been like, no, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. I don't want any of this Vulcan not, not mumbo jumbo here. I got other things to worry about. I'll just get a hypus prayer. In both cases, both of them have developed, and thus this show, scene shows that development, that he is willing to do this for her, and she is willing to do this for him. The naked part is a little bit less acceptable, but I will to say this. I'll take that ten times out of ten over the frickin' weird extended close shots of people rubbing biogel on each other while they argue. You know, the, the decon chamber, because... I mean, I mean, I've ranted about that enough. I think I've made my point there. So, this then leads to our very first lead, a dead end. Ooh, that's cute. It makes sense, though. This is episode one. They shouldn't find an actual lead here. So naturally, they find nothing. All they find is an empty thing, and they decide to take a random course further into the expanse that hopefully will lead them to something else. Again, that's the kind of thing I would probably do as well. What's interesting, though, is that this is actually also foreshadowing. The destroyed planet, which was destroyed relatively recently, especially when it comes to you know cosmic scale of things. Huh. And this whole episode does help to establish a lot, but you'll notice this is arguably our first environmental episode. That is to say, where the environment itself is the threat. Either the people living within the hellscape or the hellscape itself. We'll see where we go next episode. What is the next episode? Oh, God, the next episode's anomaly, isn't it? Well, we'll see how this continues next time.